Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about sustainability. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Yay! Hi, Christina! You may have noticed Hi. that Christina's back. <laughs> I've been on sabbatical, as you may have noticed, for season three for kind of various reasons, including kind of family reasons. And in fact, that's going to be one of the things we're talking about later this season Mm. is being a conservator and having a family. Spoilers. uh, I'm looking forward to talking. I don't think it's a massive spoiler. No, no, it's not. (laughs) That's it. We're in season four now. Yeah, that's Season four, everyone. Yeah, weird. Who thought we'd get here? Like, Mm, yeah. It's weird. I know. And lovely. <laughs> um, any other news? Chloe, you had a piece of news, didn't you? I do have a piece of news. So this came out in August, which I think is a nice time of year for this kind of story because it's sort of the height of the growing season in terms of just generally plants. Um, English Heritage has launched a campaign to save castles from weeds. Um, and so basically that that gorgeous, picturesque, green-covered ruins uh, of fairy tales and all of our kind of romantic... Um, <laughs> ideals is actually very, very harmful and detrimental, as we probably will already have guessed and have talked about and complained about to our likely bored partners who just want to go for a nice walk. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm just talking about myself. So they are raising money through crowdfunding and basically just increasing awareness of the problem and the fact that it is a problem so that they can start helping. Uh, Icon uh, has announced, obviously, its uh, next triennial conference and the call for papers is open until October 31st. So uh, get your abstracts in for next year's conference in June. I'm feeling the pressure a bit about this. I want to put something in, but... Do you? I do. Do you you want to talk in front of all these people? (laughs) No. (laughs) I do want to put something in, though, but it's one of these, like, is what I'm doing important enough? Is what I, I think, want to talk about important enough. Yeah. As well as the sort of main plenary session, they will presumably have breakout sessions for all of the groups as well, which offers a slightly more low key way to low key is work, where I'm rather at. Rather than talking to four hundred <laughs> people in one room. Yeah. And low key also, is where I'm at. I'm afraid I'm not really on top of where the calls for papers are, but normally the groups put out their own calls for papers um, uh-huh. for the sessions that they're organising as a group. So you can look out for them as well. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to do a quick shout out because there's um, GDPR training uh, offered by ICON. Now, for people who don't know, that's General Data Protection Regulation, which is this big thing that's been really tedious to hear about. But uh, (laughs) it's at the same time very, very important because it's all about how we handle people's data. And this is specifically aimed at conservators. And it's a webinar, which I thought was quite nice. It's on October 24th, and uh, we'll pop a link to that in the show notes. It's 30 quid if you're accredited, 35 if you're a member of ICON, and 60 quid if you're not a member of ICON. Uh, Yeah. So today we're talking about sustainability and going green and everything that that might mean for museums and for conservators in particular. Uh, Woo! Yeah, that's kind of a big topic. It's a massive topic, but it's really, I hate to diminish it, but it's so in very now so i just thought i'd do a quick little definition of what sustainability is based on what the aic has said there's uh, this is basically a statement from the sustainability committee uh, about what this concept of sustainability is so they define it as sustainability derives from a commitment to policies and practices that ensure social 
economic and environmental endurance. Applied together, the principles of collections care, preventive conservation and sustainability enable the preservation of both our world and its cultural heritage. I thought that was really nice. That's, really That's interesting nice. because I've actually found an alternative oh. definition, oh, uh, oh, go which on. is <laughs> which is from the UN World Commission on Environment and Development, which I found quoted in a paper, mm. and that says that sustainable development is defined as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Mm. Oh God, that well, sounds really so. Basically, don't f- it up for the future, <laughs> <laughs> and. What you mentioned, Jenny, in the AIC definition mm. about considering social, economic, and environmental issues is what's also known as the triple bot- bottom line. Oh, yes. Um, and I know that's something the National Trust has been taking into account in some of their policies as well. Uh, is this like the, the three legs of the stool and all the other things that it's... it is? Yes. Basically, yeah. I and mean... it's the idea of the bottom line in business, yeah. sort of essentially boiling down to economic considerations. And the idea is that you should be having a triple bottom line, which doesn't just consider financial and economic issues but also takes into account uh, people social issues and also environmental ones i actually had that written down as well as an interesting kind of all-round concept because i was thinking mm-hmm. of how do we apply that to museums and heritage because obviously well i say obviously but i feel like when we're talking about going green as museums and conservators we tend to think of the environmental side of things but in actual fact you've got the kind of social impact and you've got the financial impact as well and yeah that's actually something that comes up in an interview a little bit later on uh, in this episode but right so i was thinking about the social angle where i was thinking Actually, I suppose for museums, it might be more institutional, like how we approach Mm -hmm. this concept of a sustainable future as an institution. And in that case, it's stuff like how much can we store and look after? And do we need to rationalize that? Or do we need to look into something like co-storage for that? Or even considered disposal. Yeah, no, exactly. And and looking at um, how you write your acquisitions and disposals policies so that they include sustainability as a concept, so that you're not continuing to collect more than you can store and look after. Yeah, no, quite. And then I was talking to someone recently about the idea of co-storage because I hadn't really thought much about this. And her idea is that loads of social history museums have often the same thing and is that actually sustainable like does every single museum with a social history collection need a plow (laughs) or do we need just maybe one or two uh and like and the idea was that you could co-rationalize with other museums around you and pull things together and put them in one store that's really good quality which everyone puts money towards and then you could look after a select few samples if you see what i mean like Mm -hmm. if you want to have a representation of every hoover in the 1900s you can have that but it means that not every museum has to have that you have one together i really like that in concept and i don't want to be a naysayer in this episode <laughs> however that makes me really nervous no i'm, it's, I'm completely it's the with idea you idea of having like i suppose it's the don't fuck it up for the future element of we could be not seeing value that the future would hold in things that we just don't hold now and by getting rid of stuff this is the first mm. point getting rid of stuff we could be saying oh we don't think that this is important now but you know in the future it could be it could be hugely important I, I can't currently think of an example but 
the other the main thing that makes me nervous is the idea of keeping like the two examples of anything ever in the country in the one building that could really easily just suddenly catch fire yeah and we wouldn't have a plow anymore (laughs) at all and the, I mean, the, this... the fact that we've got loads of collections in the country that are probably, let's face it, in differing conditions, mm. different, you know, states of whatever, actually does protect against, you know, the catastrophic fire thing. But I do, I find it's really, it's a really interesting idea, but it just makes me feel a bit twitchy. Yeah, I mean, this this was my gut reaction as well. Like, I I do see the nice sides to it, mm-hmm. and like, oh my god, you could have you could have a purpose built store that would be really nice and would have all the right things uh, if you got the funding for it and everyone pulled together. Uh-huh. It could be this glorious space where you could keep everything safe, but at the same time, you are putting all your eggs in one basket. Uh-huh. And I I feel slightly like. Okay, so we're keeping only one of everything. And then I feel slightly like I want a backup. Maybe we'll keep two of everything. <laughs> and then that that reminds me of a children's book that I had when I was little, which was about a man who kept two of everything in case something broke. And he was really uh, obsessed with keeping two of everything. <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, I'm going to become that man. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And obviously what happens when your one Henry the Hoover bites the dust? Yeah. Uh, then you suddenly don't have another Henry the Hoover to have. I mean, I mean, I know that actually heritage is not really replaceable you can't say you can't actually say oh we'll just get another henry the hoover yeah because we can because ultimately that's not how archaeology works and it's not no. how and it's not how any of these things actually work no and i suppose it depends on the type of object as well because like in the future we're probably going to have enough examples of iphone sixes <laughs> but but i did slightly question does this like is this only for the mass-produced era that this co-curation mm. or co-storage yeah. could work? Or is mm. it for all social history, but only social history because you can't do it with archaeology because it's the things are too unique? Then You're you, going to do it yeah. with paintings? Yeah, exactly. And then you Just can't, keep one Rembrandt. Yeah, exactly. And then you can't do it with paintings. So like, where where is it we draw the line? And then is it just because we view social history as slightly more disposable? Like, because that's oh, yeah. kind of not okay either. No. Um, yeah, so it, it raises all these interesting kind of dilemmas and ethical questions, whilst at the same time being a lovely idea. <laughs> I think the other thing about social history is that often the value of the objects is very, very closely tied to the context as well. Yeah. And so often social history museums also function as museums that tell the history of the area that the museum is in and the region and so i don't think you'd be very happy um if you wanted to plow borrowing one from somewhere that was 150 miles away in a completely different part of the country that has no connection yeah to your area your museum the people who live there when you're trying to tell your museum is trying to tell the story of that area and the people who live there yeah and i mean this is a dilemma that comes up because sometimes as with any museum our records might not be as thorough and meticulous as we'd like and sometimes we just find an object that doesn't really have a story and it makes us a bit sad Mm. and would you just end up with a building full of orphaned uh, objects yeah orphan objects with no stories attached that people just use as examples like this is a piece of 1950s clothing yeah donor unknown yeah is is that just (laughs) is that what we end up with instead because isn't that kind of hollow Mm. like is that just not a bit sad as well i have another museum generica (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) it's just old stuff now yeah 
on a global scale, sustainability, the environment is a huge issue. I'm not sure how happy I would be making decisions to chuck stuff away from my collection and jeopardise my collection when essentially the powers that be in the United States, for example, and other gigantic countries are backing away from protecting the environment. Like, Mm. surely the first step is to truly campaign for sustainability on a large scale rather than me worrying about whether I've got too many Henry Hoovers. <laughs> I mean, it's a worrying global trend. But uh-huh. I do think that grassroots is also uh, yeah, worth Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And that's what so the episode like, is about. And so I I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to stop recycling because the current president of America isn't very keen on the environment. No, like, I get that. Yes. <laughs> I think also, I mean, everything we do in a museum has impact. So you can't just say, well, why does it matter how many Hoovers I've got? Because there's um, a massive in the White House and pulled the country out of the Paris Accord and stuff like that. I mean, you, you can't you, you can't do that. That doesn't stop you. As Jenny said, you still have to do your bit. You still have to still live have day to, to day. Consider, yeah. yeah, and you still have to consider how your collections policies and your conservation practices and so on are affecting those things as well. And uh, I guess the thing is that we maybe haven't previously really as a profession approached this as how how does what we do impact the environment? Mm-hmm. We just kind of gotten on with it and yeah. just going like, well, this impacts the objects. So that's what we care about. But actually, I think it's about widening what we're looking at maybe and going, well, what can we do that's a little bit greener? Like just mm-hmm. a little bit, yeah. like not massively, not like never ever using toluene ever again for anything <laughs> under any circumstances ever Just throw away all that simpronic <laughs> yeah that, no that like not not that hardcore just what can we do to be a little bit greener because that helps but i think one of the problems we have as a profession one of the many problems we have <laughs> actually two problems two problems with this one is the difficulty in taking joined up action because there's there's no way for museums to coordinate their action very easily and you have massive national museums doing one thing and you have little tiny local authority museums doing another thing and so on and and we're not really aware of what other people are doing and there's no way to coordinate our action so I think that's quite a big problem for the profession and the other problem really is that we don't have a good way at the moment of measuring what our problems are and how much impact mitigation would have Mm. so for example we don't really have a great idea i think in most museums where our biggest environmental impact is Um, it's probably going to be to do with energy use and we can kind of measure that you can use your energy bills as a proxy for that and so on and you but there are other things like use of materials and so on where it's quite hard to measure where you're at at the moment Mm. and to know what would have the biggest impact Um, Well, you know, where do you get most bang for your buck environmentally in Mm -hmm. terms of changing practice? So I think it would be really useful for museums to have a better way of doing an environmental audit and finding out where they are. And if we did X, then the impact would be Y and you would save so many tonnes of CO2 a year or you would, I don't know, reduce your use of nitrile gloves by 25% or... Agreed. There was uh, the Museum Association had a bit of a stab at this, and they developed a kind of a carbon footprint toolkit. But it was very complicated, really, and uh, I don't know how widely used it was. They they were for a while really trying to campaign that museums need to know what their carbon footprint is and like what they can do to reduce it. But I think the process was ultimately not quite as easy as people would have liked. 
And obviously, I mean, I think for my employer, it would be very difficult to figure out what just in terms of energy emissions and stuff like what or like energy bills, because we're part of a council. We don't really see Mm. the bill, the itemized bill for how much the museum costs. We certainly don't see it for the store because our store is a shared building, which is shared by many different departments. So ultimately, we wouldn't even be able to calculate how much is our bit versus, you know, just office workers having 20 cups of coffee each a day and like running all the aircon. <laughs> like, you know, like it's it's that kind of building where you can't tell. So I can see how it's very complicated in practice to try to work out for museums how much they might be essentially spending in terms of energy usage and stuff like that. Because actually, in reality, it is well complicated. I think one very, very useful tool I found was proposed in a paper by Jane Henderson, our very own Jane Henderson, and Megan De Silva, which was published in the Journal of the Institute of Conservation in volume 34, number one, March 2011. If anyone's interested, we can put links to this because actually this paper is available open access. So anybody can download it and read it because it was felt to be so important that we didn't want to have any barriers to access there. Um, And their paper is called Sustainability in Conservation Practice and looks at some of these issues. And one of the things they propose in their paper is some environmentally sustainable benchmarks in collection care. Mm. So you might be familiar with the notion of benchmarks for collection care more generally. Um, The idea is that there are a series of criteria and you have a look at how well your collection complies with these various criteria and as a result of that you're scored as meeting basic practice good practice or best practice and the idea is obviously to at least meet the basic practice you know in ideally it gives you ideas for how you can upgrade your practices until you're meeting best practice and so they provide benchmarks for eight different areas which are compliance with regulations targets and best practice Mm -hmm. so how well do you do you have conservation policy that kind of thing are you disposing of your hazardous products properly Mm -hmm. the next one is waste management which i think is something we think about surprisingly little actually but uh you know are you reusing things as much as you could be are you reducing your use of things in the first place and um, as a last resort are you recycling them the third benchmark is sustainable procurement basically are you considering the life cycle of the product how it's made where you're getting it from what the carbon impact is of actually procuring it i think they give in their paper an example of a company that makes recycled acid-free tissue um, which you can buy in the uk but they're sourced from a company in new york (laughs) transportation Uh, of which mm. results in high carbon emissions so that's the kind of thing that you need to be thinking about as well when you're procuring things and the fourth one is energy management and use of other natural resources thinking about your energy use turning off stuff when it's not in use doing an energy audit to find out where most of your energy is going having lights on timers a lot of these are actually really good things to do for conservation practice anyway so Mm. the fifth one is pollution management so that's to do with identifying less polluting alternatives to things the sixth benchmark is staff involvement so does everybody understand the issues have people had appropriate training Mm -hmm. do you maybe have an advocate in your museum who can lobby for these issues 
Seventh, and this is an interesting one because I hadn't considered this at all until I read this paper, is public involvement and communication. Mm. So under basic practice, it's got things like energy performance certificates are clearly displayed on site. Sustainability efforts are communicated within conservation department. But then higher up the hierarchy, you've got things like including the consequences of climate change on heritage in your public engagement and displays. So is this the kind of oh, thing the museum is talking about? Mm, yeah. And are you publicising more widely the efforts that you're making to reduce your environmental impact? And then the final one, sorry about this long list, number eight is review of the success of sustainability efforts, which is obviously something that's very important to do in any of these things. You have to keep measuring how you're doing, looking at your performance, seeing how you could improve it yeah. um, all the time. No. So it's a really it's got loads of really practical ideas. I think it's a really useful paper that every conservator should read. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to bring up the kind of Harvard University Green Lab thing, but actually that covers most of the points that they have in their Green Lab policy. But yeah, so there are loads of things that we can do and sometimes it can be as easy as implementing you know some recycling on site mm-hmm. and stuff like that i mean it infuriates me that my my employers don't recycle yeah makes yeah, me very I'm cranky really so i i have a bucket of old batteries that i bring <laughs> down the hill to tesco because i'm so infuriated by this and I, i've put up like passive aggressive notes please bring your batteries to jenny <laughs> because i i'm just i just refuse to bin these things i mean it's not on i have a note about uh, glove recycling Ooh. um that was mm-hmm. sparked by your list there um so this actually came up i'm part of the um social history curators group um in my work and that basically just means i get loads of emails from everyone asking questions and responses to them and it's really interesting and one of the questions was can we recycle gloves or what can we do about gloves basically and my initial thought was oh i've got we had a we did that um episode on gloves so if you're interested have a listen but in later research we did mention in the in the episode that there is a recycling scheme by kimberly clark for kimberly clark specific gloves where essentially they get turned into something else i think and i'm just done a bit more reading this really interesting blog post from the university of edinburgh written in 2015 about what their school of chemistry did or was working on with the management uh, the waste management officer so they outlined basically the 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 200,000 pairs of gloves they have to buy every year and ways Jeez. to i know and ways to sort that out so basically all they did was place plastic boxes around where people were using them so that people could put their gloves and only their gloves when they were used in there and i was interested by this because if it's a school of chemistry i imagine some of these things will contain hazardous waste and that was my main sort of concern about us recycling gloves as as conservatives because we can't necessarily guarantee that what we've got on our gloves isn't hazardous and then apparently every six to eight weeks um, TerraCycle which is the recycling company that they work with in uh, Kimberly Clark collect the gloves and um, take them to, for processing in Somerset and apparently they are blended with recycled plastics to form a wood replacement material and they're looking into making furniture and stuff out of that so it's not that they're making more gloves or that they're washing the gloves or you know repackaging or whatever mm. but they are turning it into another material which i assume would be made anyway what i really want to know is the furniture they're making the wood substitute is it like purple and blue <laughs> oh i want it to be i imagine they've got various <laughs> colorants in there <laughs> oh shucks <laughs> wouldn't it be poetic if we all filled our labs with the lab furniture made of old gloves oh yeah 
Yeah. So we're talking about what our actual behaviours can can do in museums. And that's I'm really interested in that article from, from Jane and from Megan. So in terms of actual materials that we're gonna, we, we can use, does that mean then, do we think, that in terms of storage, for example, we should be steering clear of Plastazote and Corex in favour of card boxes and acid-free tissue? I mean, I already favour card boxes. Uh-huh just in general I feel that yeah so I feel we I do because of expense and I feel like it's something that I've come across more in the smaller museums I've worked in because it's basically I suppose much cheaper to buy in bulk you can reuse it more easily rather than cutting plastic but I feel like for a while the ideal has been that the absolute perfect storage is to have plastic cut outs and corex boxes and preferably a little viewing window or whatever like that's the kind of you know that's the kind of do you I mean, well, that's I the mean, kind that's... of box that people take photos of. Because I, I don't, I mean, I, I'd never had that sense that there was a hierarchy there. That's the Instagram box. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's just, it's more fancy to do that. Basically, it's it's the kind of box that I've seen on the very well-funded storage regeneration project when people have attempted to basically completely standardise their packaging in those terms. Then this is, this is, it's worth saying quite a lot objects particularly rather than paintings or textiles or you know right right okay yeah i mean with textiles i think people do tend still to use card boxes Uh Mm. and as far as i'm concerned the big advantage of card is that you can get prefabricated boxes or self-assembly boxes and it is just much much quicker than having to make corex boxes by yourself so i mean i've i've only ever really been in museums where corex was used as a kind of last resort almost yeah when something oh, needs, right. where we couldn't get you know where we had to make a custom sized yeah oh, we can't this cannot fit in a box we have to make a box god damn it get the get the corex out it's so expensive <laughs> use as little as possible <laughs> In a previous museum, um, we had to have, out of necessity, because our stores were tiny, uh, we had to have custom-made boxes Mm. to maximise the shelf space so that we didn't have any kind of awkward gaps on the shelves. And it was still cheaper, um, I think, to do that. Once you factored in staff time, it was definitely cheaper to go to Pell or somebody like that and say, actually, can we have boxes made to exactly this size? And we chose to have boxes made from Ecofant, which is a conservation-grade recycled board. Oh, so I've got another, I've got, it's just a bit of a bugbear, I have to say. Okay. A chip on my shoulder, if you will. Temporary exhibitions. And I think these are mentioned later, (laughs) which is very interesting. Mm. And I do, temporary exhibitions, woohoo, we love them. They get objects on display that haven't been on display. Mm. They get objects, for that reason, conserved, if there's no funding for, you know, core conservation, uh, which there never is. (laughs) However, the exhibitions that I've seen and encountered and worked on myself have always been really, really, really wasteful. And I don't, this isn't just about money, because obviously, you know, the fact that a lot of exhibitions, even from fairly small museums, are quite well funded, suggests that they're going to be spending money on stuff. And that just means more frames, more mounts, more cases, little perspex domes, everything you can think of. And it's all new and it's all, you know, just going to be thrown away possibly or kept and then lost and then damaged i mean this is interesting because i remember from you and i working on projects together Uh that temporary exhibitions can be kind of mental yes (laughs) obviously 
I think there's more in terms of cost than carbon footprint. I mean, obviously, you can get that as well because loans can come from very far away. Uh-huh. But I was thinking more in terms of a lending institution might have built the special crate that's only yes. used once because uh-huh. it's got a special yeah. cutout that's only for this object <laughs> ever. And like, it gets kind of mental and it's interesting to see. And obviously, most of the interpretation once the exhibition is over just gets binned usually yeah. and that sort of thing. And if it's on foam card... Yeah, and it's all plastic. But I would now like to say that I'm supremely proud of my museum because we have no money. So we recycle everything. (laughs) Amazing. So... Our temporary exhibitions, I mean, we have the cases we have. The things have to fit mm-hmm, in the cases. Mm-hmm. There's no, like, there's no <laughs> leeway there. Come on. Um, but in terms of, in even in our standard galleries, we have these boards that are mounted on the walls in a way that they're easily uh, removed again. And the good thing about them is that they can be rewrapped so you can put new interpretation on the boards. Is that vinyl wrap? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an issue in and of itself. But <laughs> so I'm going to be that kind of... Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But I'm just saying you can reuse the actual panel, Uh Uh which is, you know, less cost and also less waste. Uh So that can go back up on the wall. Anything that's mounted on foam inside the cases does very much get reused. We use the back of those for the next labels. (laughs) And like we use those things three times if we can. (laughs) And we have a set amount of we we basically have these crates full of perspex stands. And they're the ones we have. Like, you know, like you you can make something work or you can go to the lab and create something if you're really, really Uh savvy. Like that's that's what that is. So like there's no wastage there things get reused indefinitely and Mm -hmm. i'm really proud of us for that actually like we do really well with very little in terms of like spending like at some point someone clearly bought those things yeah like they they last guys and even ones that are a little bit specialized can be adjusted to work for a different Mm -hmm. uh, a different object just saying so i have a a similar well i was proud of myself for my last exhibition because though quite a lot of it was the build for an exhibition i recently worked on was quite extensive and so working with designers to create exhibitions that aren't so wasteful is a really big deal and i think we do talk about that later as well but i reused uh, the mounts that we had previously but we did have new frames which i thought was a shame but then a couple of months later i visited the whitworth art gallery in manchester and they made they've made some improvements in their storage um that it sounds so simple but it's really important they all they did it seems is they've just appropriately stored the stuff that they have and they've stored their exhibition material and their, the, the past exhibition content in a really accessible organized way and everything is recorded and they know what they've got and nothing is being damaged by inappropriate storage going to visit it was really inspiring just because it's basically thinking to the future and imagining what you might need to use by just being a bit more respectful for what you've already bought and i know loads of people be thinking well yeah we do that obviously but other people might be thinking oh yeah that's that's a brilliant idea it's so it's it's not just you know it's not just your collections you need to store most sensibly yeah i think one of the problems with that is that often the will is there but it's just not feasible in practice so my job at the moment is as an exhibitions and loans conservator literally all i do is prepare objects for exhibitions and external loans and we are well aware of where 
we're being wasteful. Uh-huh. Um, but there's there's no way to get around that sometimes. So I'm working on a very, very large exhibition at the moment um, where we're sending out 39 objects, I think it is, to some of them very large, some of them extremely fragile, to another institution. And so they're going out in 15 crates or whatever. We would love to store and reuse those crates mm-hmm. because it's horrifically wasteful that they're all going to be put in a skip at the end of this. But we have nowhere to store crates. Our stores are already bursting at the seams Um, we can barely fit staff in the building let alone crates that we're only going to be using a couple of times a Mm -hmm. year and so unfortunately we're probably just not going to be able to keep these things at the end of the exhibition it's heartbreaking we all know that it's really bad but I, i i don't know what else we can do about that okay so i have a thought about that and I mean, it okay. might it might not work for it might not work for where you work now, but if someone out there is having a similar problem, I would say that a shout out to Museum Free Cycle. There I might be someone out there who can store these and who can uh-huh. use them rather than you guys. Uh, I mean, if you're very lucky, someone might be able to store them for you, but that might be a bit taking a bit far. <laughs> but someone might be able to take them off your hands and use them for themselves. So I might try Museum Free Cycle at a time like that, much like we've done with display cases and old thermal graphic loggers and stuff where it's like does anyone want these because we don't need them we need the space we don't need these and fair enough i'm not sure a four meter long crate is quite yeah i mean it's, it's neat but, logger, but yeah but then you never know you never know what other people need and you never know what projects other people might be coming up with and it might be that there are loans and projects and things for particularly large objects that aren't being done because people think well we can't afford to make a crate for this object so we can't use it and then you know your museum might come along saying help us with this gigantic crate and it could be you know a match made in heaven yeah Yeah, you never know fair enough so we were also talking about materials and choice of materials yes plastazote yeah i think plastazote can be recycled can it can it be recycled (laughs) i should have found this out first Certainly, plastazote can be reused. To be honest, I just assumed that it couldn't. On uh, the zotefoams.com website, they have a fact sheet which I'm downloading this moment. So obviously, they talk about reuse. So, so uh-huh. again, talking about this hierarchy of things then in the first place we should be reducing the amount of plastazote that we use after that we should be reusing plastazote when we can and i think most museums have a bag or a box somewhere of little plastazote offcuts oh yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> around in got, like, <laughs> little pieces and then uh, recycling yes um i think you can recycle it <gasps> but how easy that is in practice right. i don't know um so they can densify it <laughs> <laughs> which I assume means turning it from a foam into more of a solid not plastic. Foam. They can... yeah. So another f- form of recycling the foam material is densification of the material into pellets. Pellets produced in this process could either be sent to landfill, taking oh. up a much lower volume than oh, the original great. waste foam material. So not great, but or they can be used in new applications, for example, as a substrate for water treatment. Oh, is it like a filtering thing? Yeah, I was going to say it'll be like a filter. Thing, I, I guess so, yeah. Oh, that sounds um, gross, so, knowing kind of things that I have seen on Plastazo in the past. Um, but I, I guess this is this is also something we ought to be looking into. And and hey, listeners, if you recycle your Plastazo, write and tell us, because we clearly don't have Yes, please yeah. do. Any comments, yes. questions, etc. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing is chemicals. 
I have written down, is silica gel okay? Because one of the things I think will be... Why? What are you doing with your silica gel? Are you like <laughs> eating it? Like, that's not on. It's not okay to eat <laughs> that's it. That's not <laughs> Generally, like, how is that for the environment? How is the production of that for the environment? That's a good question. How is the disposal of that for the Because I was going to say silica gel is largely reusable, which uh-huh. is why... It, uh, well, if it's the reconditionable kind, then yeah, it's yeah. actually quite yeah. a clever thing for museums yeah. to do. Mm-hmm. You can just keep reusing it. But I don't know how hazardous hazardous it might be to the environment make. in general. Yeah. yeah, or then dispose of if you need to. Um, on materials, I went to a conference at the BM in 2009 called Going Green, which at the time I think was the first conference that they'd really been talking about these issues in conservation. And there were loads of people doing really interesting things and so on. But the paper that most stuck in my mind was one given by Julia Barton and Rachel Swift from the British Museum. And they, at, at the time the conference was being given, there was a proposed ban on dichloromethane containing paint strippers. And so oh, they were right. looking for huh. more environmentally friendly alternatives to this. And they were investigating a material called limonene. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of it. That. And I kind of, partly through my own laziness, I guess, kind of never found out how they got on with that, whether it's something that is now actually being used as an alternative. I know there are exemptions to the um, paint stripper ban for people who do need them, but it seems to me that finding alternatives is also desirable, um, not just on a practical level, but also on an environmental level anyway. So, yeah, do you use limonene, anyone? Oh, is it feasible? Yeah, that's true. Cause I, did I think see, it smells nice. <laughs> I, I did see a lot about it, but I, I kind of haven't heard about it much since. I have seen a lot of, uh, particularly there's a group called Sustainability and Conservation, which we will actually be talking to a little bit later in the episode. And they did a survey last year. Uh, which uh, went out to conservators about kind of what sort of thing they worried about. And the results were interesting because there was a really international response from people very much spread all over the world. Astonishingly, it was mostly paintings conservators who oh. responded. I say mostly by like a small margin, but <laughs> like still it was a lot of paintings conservators mm-hmm. and then obviously the usual mix. People worried mostly about the use of plastics and the use of solvents. And green green solvents is something that's very in in terms of kind of researching and trying to figure things out. And I suspect that's probably largely in paintings conservation because mm-hmm. they use a lot of much nastier things than mm, I yeah. usually do. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's that's something I'm uh, we're going to talk to Caitlin about later. Excellent. Mm. Another resource out there is Subsport, which is the substitution support portal, uh, which is basically a searchable database. I think it's an EU initiative uh, where you can find information about uh, substituting hazardous substances oh, I love um, so it. that's also worth a look lovely so one of the main things i think in sustainability museums that people often think about is the control of environmental conditions and we talked to the amazing sarah staniforth about just that in this interview Today we're talking about sustainability and I'm here with Sarah Staniforth, CBE. Sarah, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Jenny, it's really great to be talking to you and about one of my favourite subjects. I'll tell you I'll tell you what I'm doing at the moment and then I'll sort of work backwards through my career if that's okay with that you. That sounds great. I'm currently president of IIC. IIC, as I'm sure your listeners know, is the International Institute for the Conservation of Historic and Artistic Works. And we've got members in the conservation world from all over the globe. 
And as well as having that international activity, um, here at home, I am a trustee of English Heritage and the Landmark Trust and the Pilgrim Trust. And I've been doing these sort of voluntary activities since I left the National Trust in 2014. Um, I worked for the National Trust for just under 30 years, ending up as um, Museums and Collections Director. But before that, my jobs were all conservation related there. So I was head conservator and I joined as advisor on paintings conservation, Mm -hmm. which after a couple of years... I added environmental control to what I did because I realised that in the National Trust houses, we were restoring the paintings and then putting them back into houses with poor preventive conservation. So for about 17 years, I advised the National Trust on paintings conservation and environmental control before having these more senior management jobs, which I ended up on the senior management team of the National Trust. And my first job was at the National Gallery in the Scientific Department, where I worked in the early 1980s. And I was working, yeah, it was great because I was working alongside Gary Thompson. Oh, gosh. And I mean, it was almost like having a training job. He had actually just published, he published the first edition of the Museum Environment in 1978. So it was brilliant, you know, being with him in those early days. And that's what really gave me my interest in in preventive conservation. How did your interest in sustainability begin? Well, I think it was definitely at the National Gallery Actually, would it be okay if I read something? Because there was something that Gary wrote in the first edition of his book, which has really influenced me in my whole career. And it was actually one of the things that I included in the readings in conservation book that I did on preventive conservation for the Getty. But if it's okay, I'd just just like to read you this because I think it expresses really well you know, what lies behind, you know, my feelings about where we should be going with sustainability in museums. So this is this is the start of the quote. There is something inelegant in the mass of energy consuming machinery needed at present to maintain constant relative humidity and illuminance, something inappropriate in an expense which is beyond most of the world's museums. Thus, the trend must be towards simplicity, reliability and cheapness. We cannot, of course, prophesy what will be developed, but I should guess that it will include means for stabilising the RH in showcases without machinery, use of solar energy for RH control in the tropics, improving building construction to reduce energy losses and extensive electronic monitoring. And I think it's that's the end, end of quote. I think it's really amazing that Gary wrote that in 1978. Yeah. With the first edition of his book. That really, you know, got me thinking right from when I joined the National Gallery Scientific Department, not least because, of course, at the National Gallery, there was incredibly high tech air conditioning system and blinds for controlling light levels 
And it made me realize, you know, even in a place like the National Gallery, which was incredibly well resourced and had plenty of staff, how difficult it was to keep all that running and how impossible it would be in many parts of the world. So that sort of got me thinking about, well, okay, you know, that's fine for a national museum, but it's not achievable in the majority of museums. In fact, I would say in the UK, which are much less well resourced. So that got me thinking about, you know, how one can actually get good conditions for collections without this incredibly high-tech and energy-consuming approach. And I went to to work in the National Trust after five years of the National Gallery, where, of course, there was no air conditioning then, and there is no air conditioning now. Mm. And we started looking at ways of getting improving the environmental control in the historic houses that the National Trust look after. This coincided with the UK government beginning to get worried about the end of the era of fossil fuels. So the National Trust got grants from the Department of Energy to look at ways of reducing energy consumption in National Trust properties. I was working with an engineer called Bob Hayes, in the 1980s. And we began to look at conservation heating, which is using heating systems to control relative humidity levels under humidistatic control. And we did a whole lot of research and established that conservation heating used about one third of the energy of conventional heating and humidification to get the right relative humidity levels. And of course, so this was, you know, a great step forward as far as National Trust was concerned. And we introduced this conservation heating in all, well, it's taken 25 or 30 years, but this is the way that the humidity is now controlled in National Trust properties. So I I feel really good that the National Trust has followed this route and it has substantially reduced the energy consumption and it's got the relative humidity control in the houses and a lot of other historic house museums in the UK and indeed in Europe and the States are using the same method of control. So talking about the States, in the 1990s, I worked at the Getty Conservation Institute teaching on their preventive conservation course. And the Getty were one of the first sort of international organizations to try and spread the word about the importance of considering energy use. And I mean, this was quite revolutionary at the time, particularly in America, where people were pretty, pretty skeptical about energy consumption. But anyway, I mean, the Getty was great about spreading the word about the importance of considering energy consumption and finding appropriate methods to do that. And actually, what the, how they really added was looking at energy consumption in tropical climates, because, of course, 
you know, we're we're working in the UK in a temperate climate, yeah. which conservation heating works pretty well. In the tropics, you've got to find other solutions. And what they established was good ventilation actually helped a lot. And, you know, what I've learned from going all over the world, you know, looking at museums and collections housed in historic buildings, is that real importance of respecting the local climate. I had a very influential trip for me to Calcutta, where I was brought in because at the Victoria Memorial Hall Museum in Calcutta wanted to introduce air conditioning. And the conservators there instinctively felt that this was the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so they called me in. And the absolutely amazing thing, they had a lot of RH data. The humidity was up in the 90s for at least half the year, sort of in during the monsoon season. And there wasn't a single example of mold growth in that museum, except in their one air-conditioned gallery, where <laughs> they switched they switched the humid the air-conditioning plant off overnight, and of course the room was cold. It wasn't that well sealed, so hot, humid air came in and condensed on ah. the walls and the collection, and they got mold growth. So the lesson that that told me was that where buildings have been designed for the local climate and in the tropics, Mm. that means with really good ventilation, you respect that. And it is at your peril that you introduce things like air conditioning, even if the intention is to cool for human comfort Mm. in a historic building. Wow, that's fascinating. So your work clearly takes you all over the world. Um, How is the UK doing in terms of sustainability compared to the rest of the world? I would say that... You know, we were doing pretty well, you know, back in the 90s and, you know, maybe even the early 2000s. But I think the rest of the world has has caught up now. Good. And yeah, I mean, and we we may we may have stalled a bit because we've most museums have made the, you know, the quick gains. Yeah. They've changed their lights to LEDs, mm. uh, and that's that's had a big impact. I mean, I talked so far mostly about about humidity control, but actually thinking about electric lighting, LEDs have transformed energy consumption in museums. And you know, we've done we've done those those sort of things. Where I think we haven't pushed the boundaries so much is in introducing the use of renewables. And, you know, one of Gary's predictions, more for the tropics, admittedly, was was using solar power. Mm. And, you know, the National Trust has done pretty well introducing solar panels on, on the roofs. But th- that's only producing a fraction of the um, energy required. The the one museum who has done quite an extraordinary thing, and it's not very visible, is the Science Museum with their facility at Rawton near near 
Swindon in Wiltshire, mm. where there is the most enormous solar farm. I was absolutely astonished when I first saw it, actually, how big a solar farm it was bigger than you know any of those ones that you quite frequently pass on the motorways now wow i think we're doing okay but it's it's difficult when you have picked the low the low hanging fruits taking the next step is difficult and it requires the will of the museum leadership and that depends a lot on, you know, who who's there and, and what their interests are and yeah. what their priorities are. Yeah, that can be challenging depending on what kind of institution you're in. I was going to ask, uh, what can museums do to be more green? Where's a good place to start? I mean, we've mentioned the LEDs, which I feel like most museums have embraced now. But what else can museums do? I mean, they're the simple things that we would we do at home and and that's around, you know, recycling. Yeah. So for for exhibitions, the reuse of display materials, so the reuse of display cases and and where possible the the, the reuse of the interpretation material, really looking at what's what's used for temporary exhibitions and water use in the the related facilities like the tea room or the cafe or the museum shop just the sort of the packaging the rather than producing drinks in cans i mean the national trust does this they 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 will make lemonade in a jug rather than sell it in a can yeah just those things and it just it just requires people to think about it. And, you know, the question is how you get that sort of culture embedded in the museum. And I think for me, the, it can be both top down and bottom up. And it probably works best when it's both of those mm. things. Maybe green champions among the staff, and those can be, you know, staff from all levels. How can we encourage our managers and directors to take sustainability more seriously? How can we make them think about it? Well, the simplest way is to also think about the financial bottom line. Ah. Obviously, if you cut your energy consumption, you're also going to cut your costs. And that is pretty attractive to any finance director and for me that's a real win-win that's a very good lever to pull i did some work with mark jones uh, when he was director of the vna and um nick sarota when he was director at, at tate and they both wanted to reduce the carbon footprints of their respective museums and they pulled together a group of sort of heads of conservation from both the national museums and some of the heritage organizations. And this led to the Bezo Green Protocol, which really focused not just on environmental standards, but it also looked at other things like the use of materials in exhibitions, the way buildings are constructed, the importance of passive buildings, the use of display cases, and trying to just get away from very energy-consuming air conditioning systems. So that 
Visa Green Protocol has been quite, I mean, for people who don't know, by the way, the Visa Group are the group of major global museums who are involved in loan exhibitions. So that work reached a lot of museum directors internationally. The question is, you know, how how much it's been implemented. And I think that's been more variable. Mm. And one one of the things that I've observed, and it is extremely unfortunate, is that some of our uh, conservator colleagues have misconstrued what was intended in, in this protocol as a way of museum directors reducing environmental standards in order to facilitate loan exhibitions. Ah, I see. That was not the intention of this green protocol at all. It was about reducing the carbon footprint of, of museums. So what role do you think we as conservators can play in sustainability? I think looking at environmental standards and supporting the recommendations of the Bezo Green Protocol, rather than thinking that it's some conspiracy by museum (laughs) directors to reduce standards for collections, is a good start. So I would say that as as number one. The area that I have been less involved with, but I know that a lot of conservators have been looking at, is the use of chemicals. And, you know, really getting away from the, you know, the more toxic organic chemicals. So I think there's quite a lot of development that conservation science can help with. And then, of course, there's the whole thing around exhibitions and displays and really helping exhibition designers to design low energy passive display cases Mm. for collections. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, Sarah. Um, Just before you go, what's next for you? Well, we're, although this won't be broadcast until September, we're recording it in, in August. And what's very much on my mind at the moment is the IIC Congress, which is taking place in Turin from the 10th to the 14th of September. And our theme is preventive conservation. And many of the papers and posters have sustainability at their heart oh that's wonderful. preventive yeah i mean preventive conservation by its nature encourages sustainability because we're trying to make things last rather than repairing them so for example my own paper which is co-authored with nigel blades and bob hayes and katie lithko is called conservation heating 25 years on because the last iic congress on preventive conservation was in ottawa in well 24 years ago 1994 and um, that was when we first presented the work on conservation heating so it's really interesting for us to be looking back on how that has worked in practice and how it's improved sustainability of the collections in the national trust and there are many other papers that have similar themes so if people are listening to this broadcast and 
didn't manage to go to the Congress, then the papers are available for members of IIC through our studies. It's an, it, it, they count as an issue of studies in conservation. So members of IIC can get access to them from the IIC website. And so, you know, I really encourage people to have a, have a look at that. Brilliant. Oh, that sounds fantastic. So, Jenny, thank, thanks so much for letting me talk about one of my favourite subjects. And I hope that, that your listeners will, you know, if they, if they want to get in touch, please do. Um, they can get in touch to, with, with me via my president of IIC email address. And I would love to carry on this conversation. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to the Seaward today, Sarah. I mean, I'm really, I'm, I'm really heartened to see that we are moving away from massively air-conditioned things to I much am. more passive control. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things was that you tend to assume that this is going to be easier in temperate climates. But actually, the example she gave of a museum in India... Yeah, that was a brilliant example. Yeah, I've... Uh, Where you wouldn't think that passive controls would work well, but actually it was fine. I was so interested in that element, partly I think because of the um, what we had learnt in the International Friends episode last season about the problems of the environmental conditions and air conditioning, the, the problems that, that air conditioning can bring. But the, the lack of mould and the, the sort of... The purpose of buildings um, that are designed for the environmental conditions of the area is just so interesting because yeah. that just strengthens everyone's everyone's feelings about you know you can't match what they're doing in the on the other side of the world regardless of how important they think they are like, yeah. <laughs> you just can't do it <laughs> so I found that really I was really surprised and really kind of so heartened to hear that it was really really interesting there's a lot of work now, research, conferences in particular, interest in less is more in terms of environmental conditioning. And one of the things that I found really interesting in Sarah's interview was to think about really how far we have already come. Like I, I think of environmental conditioning technology and units and stuff that I've seen uh, in my short career so far. And they've always seemed really heavy duty, but she seemed to be suggesting that that's way less than they used to have. And that's, that's a lot, we've come a long way already. But nowadays, well, in recent, I suppose, years, people have been thinking more and more about passive controls and essentially in some ways just letting the environment do its thing and seeing to start with what it is that's going to happen and then working with that. The other thing that um, struck me from Sarah's interview was her mention of green champions. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The idea of having an advocate in your organisation to lobby for these issues. Mm -hmm. And that made me think about having environmental policies in museums, which is ought to be a basic requirement. But then I thought, I'm not actually sure whether my museum has an environmental policy. I'm pretty sure we don't have a green champion. We definitely champion. don't have one. Mine yeah. does. Mine does, actually. That doesn't surprise me because, you know, <laughs> activism. Uh <-huh>. Yeah. <laughs> So that's it's actually my interest in this is peaked because um, in the last couple of months, my manager went to the environmental conference in South Wales, where they were discussing passive controls mm. for use in museums. And that there, I heard I wasn't able to go myself, but I did hear there were loads of examples, talks about examples of people who had switched off their controls and assessed 
what happened to the spaces, whether it actually helped. And in a lot of cases, the, the reports were obviously success stories are more likely to go to conference, but that it saved huge amounts of money and actually produced much more sustainable, positive environmental conditions that fluctuated, but didn't fluctuate much and didn't fluctuate too far beyond the normal parameters that we like. And of course, one of the one of the things we've, we, we will have heard already from Sarah is the 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 ideal to try and just loosen up slightly on what we require as um, strict environmental condition parameters. So no, we don't. We don't have a green champion actually. But I wonder if maybe that would be that would be a good way forward. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd be really interested to hear from listeners who work in museums that do have a green champion because I can see that on the one hand it would be helpful to have this very visible advocate for green issues in your museum a kind of figurehead who can lobby for them but on the other hand i wonder if it's kind of more cynically where the museums could essentially shove all of this responsibility onto one person and then think right well job done Mm. (laughs) don't need to worry about it anymore we've got a green champion and and i worry how far that's going to be helpful if you don't then empower this person to actually do things if they don't have a voice at the highest level where decision making is happening and so on then essentially it's just kind of a fig leaf really isn't it it's it's what they call greenwashing that would be my worry and I, i would be concerned if there was just one person trying to be the champion for larger institutions whether that person would start to feel as though they were just sort of yelling into the void or nagging people yeah because you know it's 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 one thing to speak to designers about not being wasteful but then it's also another to say you know send an email round to all staff saying please may we do this that or the other in the kitchen to be more sustainable or the plastics go in this box and the card goes in that you know it i feel like it could that might just be a much harder task for larger institutions or for you know i think it would yeah Maybe encouraging everyone to be involved and responsible for their own sustainability is... I think often in large institutions in particular, these sorts of roles tend to be taken on by more junior staff because often they're more motivated to do these kinds of things and more senior people might think, oh, I'm too busy to be the green champion, I've got enough on my plate. But the trouble with that is that then they're not necessarily empowered to actually make that difference. I mean, yes, you can send out emails to people saying, oh, please, can you remember to do X, Y, and Z? But actually, you need to give these people, ideally, a budget, the power to spend it, the power to make decisions that Uh actually affect practice in that museum. And I don't know how often that actually happens. I would say probably very rarely, unfortunately. But Mm. it is a step in the right direction Mm -hmm. where, you know, we can try to implement this sort of thinking at work and maybe inspiring our colleagues is a good start yeah because ultimately i know that my organization will never implement recycling but i can still have my bucket of batteries Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i can still tell my colleagues to go and put their batteries in the bucket yeah and you know what that's better than doing nothing it's just kind of encouraging this behavior in people around you even though management might not be buying into it at the Mm -hmm. moment Mm mm-hmm But that can change. I think it's also helpful when the professional bodies um, start to weigh in Mm. on this as well. Yeah. So um, you mentioned, Jenny, the AIC Green Task Force, I think. Yes, the AIC Um, has a green one, yeah. Yeah, and as far as I'm aware, that's something ICON doesn't officially. No, it doesn't. And I think that's a bit of a gap in the UK where Mm. actually we need our professional body to be advocating for these issues for all conservators rather than all conservators thinking, okay, what can I do? 
personally. Mm. Um, I think it would it, it's, it would also be really helpful to have action on this at a national level. That would be good. Although I am really heartened to see international collaborations like sustainability and conservation, where people are coming together from all sorts of countries to say that actually this is this is some green research that we're doing. And this is what we can do. And again, conferences uh, where Mm. people share ideas. So um, IIC, quite early on, I think 2007 or 8, had a roundtable about these issues. And they were thinking about the threat to cultural heritage from climate change and so on. But it, it was starting to get these issues up there. But then I was thinking, well, yeah, conferences. I'm surprised how few conferences actually think about how to reduce the impact of the conference itself Mm. Um, and at the extreme you have these very big international conferences where people fly (laughs) from all around the world (laughs) to somewhere the conference itself is is not really helping it it seems to me deeply ironic that you could have a conference about (laughs) sustainability and environmental matters that itself contributes to the problem and I I don't want to go down the road of saying well you're supposedly an environmentalist why are you flying somewhere you know because that's the kind of argument that always gets leveled at people like Al Gore but I'm kind of surprised that more conferences haven't tried to be available through um, online streaming, for example, yeah. live web live web links, that kind of stuff, yeah. which would allow people to take part in the conference without actually physically having to travel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that's something that really needs looking at. Nothing else, but because we don't have the money for our flights, like unless yeah. you're in an extremely wealthy mm. institution or you yourself are wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, speaking of conferences, I just want to give a little shout out that there was a uh, care collections group conference in may which was also their agm and that was all about sustainability so it's not like it all has to be big national or international things it can be something as as uh, nice and small even though there were loads of people there mm-hmm. you know something like oh let's meet up in yorkshire and like talk about sustainability and that's that was really good loads of good good topics and very kind of relatable levels so it wasn't all policy and you know overarching oh huge things it was more well, what can you do in your day-to-day life? And that was uh, really nice and a good thing to take away. Today we're talking sustainability, particularly in conservation. So I've hunted down someone I thought we should really talk to. And I'm here with Caitlin. Caitlin, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello. Yes. Thank you so much, Jenny, for having me. So hello, everyone. My name is Caitlin Southwick, and I am the founder of Sustainability in Conservation. So I am a trained conservator. I have studied conservation in Europe. So I studied in Italy for three years, in the UK for a year, and then I finished my master's at the University of Amsterdam, where I am currently employed as a stone conservator. So I started sustainability and conservation two years ago because I, as a master's student, I noticed that there was sustainability was not being addressed in any significant form. I mean, when I was at Cardiff University, I had a professor, Jane Henderson, and she was very encouraging about promoting sustainability. And she was, she actually had done some work writing articles and things like that, promoting sustainable practices. But apart from that, it was, it was very few and far between. And even then it was very, it seemed that sustainability was not really a priority. So with the encouragement of Jane, I started looking into some aspects of conservation. And this is uh, the bane of my existence these days is gloves, (laughs) because this is really where the whole project started. I was uh, at, at the lab one day and I looked into the trash can and I saw just a ton of gloves and it was the whole thing was full of disposable nitrile gloves and I said this seems very wasteful and silly you know I mean half of these we're just using to handle objects isn't there something we can do about this so it was it was started off as a very small assignment for um, a research piece for Cardiff 
And then it just grew into this whole big thing. And it's become actually quite an uh, overwhelming topic because, of course, gloves. It's not just about the sustainability factor. It's about how do they affect the objects and, you know, price and all of these things. So all of a sudden, I became the expert on gloves because I'd started doing these researches. <laughs> I found a few different options for, for gloves for mitigating waste. There's recyclable gloves, there are biodegradable gloves, and then there are a couple there are a couple of different programs for the recycling. So at, at the University of Amsterdam, where I currently am, we installed the glove recycling program. And that um, was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. You know, it's very simple. It's the Kimberly Clark Wright Cycle Program, and all you do is you switch over to the Kimberly Clark gloves, which are commonly used at a lot of conservation studios all over the world. With with the University of Amsterdam, we had to switch over to the gloves, and that was a whole process within itself. I also did a pilot program of the recycling gloves at the Rijksmuseum and found that there were some issues possibly with the gloves. So I ended up doing all of these various tests on various types of nitro gloves. And if you're interested in hearing the results, I will be presenting them next year at Icon CC Metals in Switzerland. Cool. So yeah, so it's, you know, and it, it's so interesting to me because that's just one such a tiny component of the bigger picture here. And it's, if it takes that much time and that much effort and that much research, I just started feeling overwhelmed with the topic. And I also feeling very, like in a position that I couldn't do anything. Because, you know, here I am a student. Mm. And it took me two years to get the glove recycling program going at the University of Amsterdam and how frustrating that was and how many times I wanted to give up and just be like, you know what, it's not worth it. Um, it's finally up and running. It's been up and running for the last year, year and a half, I think. And it's going really, really well and everyone's very happy with it. And we, I cannot, I mean, we've posted pictures on our social media site about how many gloves we've been collecting. It's just shocking. Wow. So a lot of conservators, they think, oh, we don't use that many gloves, but you do. It adds up. Oh yeah, you do. Um, so I, I decided to start SIC. Basically, it started as a network. So I wanted to kind of empower students to think, okay, you know what, we can do something. We're not in a position that we have to just sit there and do everything our teacher says, but we can say, hey, you know, maybe there are more sustainable options. So I, I started it basically as a Facebook group, and it started as SSIC, which was Students for Sustainability in Conservation. Oh. And just to try and build awareness and try and get a global network and exchanging ideas and supporting each other. And so I would post things and, uh, you know, oh, you know, this is something that we're doing in our lab and it doesn't seem very sustainable. Does anyone have any ideas on how to make, you know, more sustainable alternatives yeah. or posting ideas like, oh, hey guys, do you all roll your own cotton swabs, which, you know, sounds very simple, but I, I've seen a lot of private practices and museums that still use the pre-rolled wow. cotton swabs, which yeah. is quite shocking, but it's true. So apparently <laughs> that's still a thing. I started to get a lot of followers on Facebook, but it was, it was very unengaged. People were, I think, I don't know if people were just like, hadn't really thought about it or didn't really have anything to add. Mm -hmm. But I, I had a lot of people comment saying like, oh, this is a great idea, but no one was giving me anything back. So finally I decided I can't do this alone because I was trying to do like a tip a week and I just ran out of tips. I mean, I'm a stone conservator, so I'm only in one very small aspect and there's so much more. Yeah. So I started recruiting people. I, I posted on my Facebook group and said, hey, does anyone want to join me and form like a team and let's make this a thing? And then I slowly started building my team and uh, we now have 11 team members. The women that work with me are absolutely, they're all absolutely indispensable and phenomenal. I could not do any, now we 
would not be anywhere we are without these ladies. They are just phenomenal. So how I kind of wanted to build SIC, so we, we ended up, because the team is mostly comprised of young professionals or master's students. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to make this bigger. So we decided to drop the first S, become just sustainability and conservation, and expand into the professional world as well. And the idea after like taking the next step at that point was basically we wanted to go from just being a network of exchanging ideas to actually being a resource. So we wanted to continue to be able to provide people with you know a space or a forum where they could exchange ideas and talk and discuss things, ask questions. But we also wanted to be a central place where people could find out information. Because what I found is that there is so much out there, but it's all scattered. It's difficult to find. So the whole idea behind the website was, okay, if anyone wants to know anything related to sustainability and conservation, they can go on our website and it's either there or there's the forum right there, or there's our contact information. They can reach out to us and we will figure it out. So it's it's about bringing people together and it's about um, having reliable resources available to you. Uh, that includes people. So we have on our website, we have information about various museums around the world that are doing sustainable initiatives. We have research. We have a, bibli- a very extensive bibliography with uh, various literature uh, in multiple languages, of course. One of the benefits of being an international organization is that maybe there's three of us on the team that are native English speakers. So we have we have uh, Francesca in Italy, and we have Bianca in Portugal. We have Mariana in Germany. You know, and so we've got a lot of we've got a, a very broad outreach, which is fantastic. Also, language wise. And then the other part of, besides being a resource and a a network, is we also wanted to start initiating programs. My My first idea was I wanted to start at the university level and have students become more responsible as well as become more aware about sustainability. So we started the Student Ambassador Program, and since, since we started, Estelle has taken it over, and she has just made this into something absolutely phenomenal. So we did a kind of a pilot project last year with a select group of universities to see what that looked like and how that was and how that would work. And we collected some information back from from the various student ambassadors. And then this year we're going to be relaunching the program and Estelle has put together a handbook. It's a whole guide how oh, wow. to how everything works. So if anyone is interested, please get in contact with us and let us know. We will send you we will sign you up and send out the handbook and all of the information. So that's kind of the um, long and short of how we started. Now we offer other programs as well. We have Sarah Braun and I are putting together a toolkit for sustainability. So she, uh, Sarah was a consultant for UNESCO. And she worked on this project, putting together a sustainability tourism toolkit for UNESCO. And so we're taking that as a basis and turning it into a sustainability toolkit for conservation. Amazing. So, and then we wanted we wanted to take it further. So we will have this available for conservation labs. We will have it available for museums, for institutions, universities, private practice. We're going to have all of that online. So we are currently working on the the basis for that, and that should be up and running, we're hoping, by the end of the year. Oh, that's so very exciting. Keep an, keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We um, also are very involved with collecting data. One thing that I've found is that, you know, there's so little information about what actually needs to be addressed. So we've yeah. we've been sending out surveys. I don't know if anyone is on the disk list. You've probably seen a million of these come out. But we're just <laughs> collecting data on to find to identify problem areas and figure out how we can help yeah. you 
be more sustainable. So, you know, where would you like to see sustainability more implemented? And then the last thing we're involved with is um, the Life Cycle Assessment Project, which is actually a collaboration between Sarah Sutton and Sarah Nunberg and the American Institute for Conservation. And this is an absolutely amazing and such an important project. So they're putting together basically a database of materials that are used in conservation and museums and then doing a life cycle assessment on each one of those. Um, a life cycle assessment is basically a cradle-to-grave numerical value for the carbon footprint of a product it's, and it's analyzed from cradle to grave so you know if you have a piece of paper you would take a look at okay where is the tree grown how is the tree cut down how far does the tree have to go to the factory in order to get processed what is the sustainability input then what is the sustainable you know how far does it have to travel from the factory to where it's used and then all the way to is it recycled is it thrown away and so it, it takes every step of the process of an item and then assigns a uh, basically a numerical value for a carbon footprint and so they're creating a database for this. Oh, that's that going to be immense. It's incredible. These women have just done such an amazing job. So um, we are partnering with them as well to help collect data. So over the next couple of years, you will be seeing a lot of uh, requests for data collection. So please help out with that because this is so needed. This is really such a phenomenal thing. You know, it, and the, the other part, of course, is is trying to make this easy for conservators because, you know, we've got big jobs. <laughs> you know, we're, I know we're, we're all busy. We're all underpaid and overworked. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, the last thing we need to do is have to think about, okay, I want to be, be sustainable, but I, I just don't have the time, the energy. I don't know even where to start. It's such an overwhelming issue. So we're trying to make it easy. Simple solutions, but also about how to make people actually go follow through with it and how to make it easy on people. So I keep hearing all this stuff about green solvents and newfangled gels, yes. and I know nothing about <laughs> it. But you're doing a lot of interesting research as part of your network, and I'd love to hear more about yes. it. Perfect. I, I thank you so much for calling them newfangled gels because that's exactly how a lot of conservators look at it. Because my goodness, this is a very intense topic, and um, <laughs> I have um, four researchers who are working on our green solvents and gels project, and this is one of our biggest projects. So I personally, uh, I'm as I said, I'm a stone conservator. So gels actually are definitely a thing in stone conservation. It's of course a little bit different in uh, paintings conservation and things like that. And I was fortunate enough to attend a workshop by uh, Paolo Cremonesi last year where he taught us about gels. But it was also a little intimidating and overwhelming because there's so much chemistry behind it that at the end of the day, you know, we would make the gels and it was like, oh, this is so great. This is easy. Like, the, I, actually, it's not as scary as you think it is. But then a couple weeks later, I was in the lab and I wanted to do some gel cleaning tests and I'm like, uh, okay, where do I start? <laughs> because I'm thinking, okay, you know, do you pour the carbon pole into the water, the water into the carbon pole? And we, no, no, you can't use that with this. And it was, it just got a little overwhelming. Um, mm. And I think gels, they are such an invaluable way to minimize your use of solvents. If you do have to use solvents, they are, they're a much, much greener alternative. What do you hope is next for the network? Well, um, I am an ambitious woman and I've got big plans for us. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um, 
We, we actually just had a meeting last month about the future of the organization because we're getting bigger and bigger and we're at this point where we're doing a, we do a lot of conferences so we're very visible at conferences we you know I think I'm going to be attending five conferences next year something like that um, wow <laughs> yeah I like traveling so that bodes well <laughs> and I yeah, always get good. this and I have to say because um, I People always say, Caitlin, that's so unsustainable how much you fly. I mean, I just returned from the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco, which was phenomenal, by the way. Mm. Uh, we, we all have to give a shout out to the uh, uh, the climate heritage mobilization that Andrew Potts uh, put together. and all. But the UN, I actually just found out, because if you book your ticket, certain airlines will, will offer a um, CO2 offset. But And the UN also offers it. So when you travel, you can go onto the UN website and make a donation that will offset your carbon footprint of your travel. Oh, so wow. I, I just make sure to always do that. It goes all to reforestation in um, developing countries. So it's, it's really, that's very cool. But anyway, I, I'm cool. digressing. But uh, so we just had a conversation about uh, where we'd like to take the future of the company or of the organization. And currently we were basically just a digital platform. And of course, you know, we're, we're all women working independently and working together. But we want to, we're going to, uh, reg- we've decided we're going to register the organization. The biggest, so because the EU has such a great support system for sustainability and great options right now uh, we decided we're going to register in the Netherlands as either an NGO or an NPO that way we can start getting some funding and expand on these projects that we're working on so the idea is basically that we're going to be continuing to just expand on everything we're doing now um, we're always welcoming new team members as well of, of course followers if you want to get involved please contact me I'm always looking for someone with great ideas or just a passion for sustainability we've got so many cool projects we can put uh, people on or if they have ideas ideas of projects they'd like to start. This is a great place to do it. So if you have an idea on how to make conservation more sustainable, call me, email me, come knock on my door. I am here <laughs> and happy to uh, make that a reality. You know, the mission of, of this organization is to make conservation more sustainable. So until we have a carbon neutral profession, there's plenty of work to be done. That's it's a big task, but I th- it sounds like you're doing a good job of it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Well, we're just getting started. This is uh, we're going to we're going to take this take this as far as we can. And thank you so much for talking to us today, Caitlin. Really oh, appreciate it. Oh, my Especially pleasure. Especially considering you're a bit tired after, you know, jet setting off to San Francisco. <laughs> thank you guys so much for having me. This is um, it's definitely a treat. <laughs> Today I'm reviewing not one but two books on sustainability. We'll start with Sustainable Heritage, Merging Environmental Conservation and Historic Preservation by Amalia Leifster and Barry L. Stiefel, which is a 2018 Rutledge publication. This lovely softcover book starts with an introduction to various concepts, such as what do we mean by sustainability, heritage and preservation and why we should care about sustainable practices, while also outlining many of the challenges facing mankind in the future. The author is making a conscious effort to be inclusive and talk about heritage preservation as a term that spans both conservation of intangible and cultural heritage. Both of the authors are American, but the book really tries to be properly global in its approach, and that's especially appreciated as a sort of pan-European reader. This is one of those pleasantly academic books where you'll find tons of background research and generous footnotes for each chapter. 
You get a genuine feeling that the authors are really passionate about the subject matter and it's nice to see a book that actually tries to marry environmental issues with looking after built heritage. Oh yeah, I should probably point that out. This book focuses heavily on buildings and heritage sites as opposed to museums as such. The authors take us on a bit of a journey that explores how humans relate to heritage and nature, what sustainable design really is, how ecology can become a part of the planning processes, and how we can approach the reuse of buildings. This is where the book really comes together, actually. I really enjoyed how it offered regional examples of architecture from around the world, and how it explains how climate shapes architectural features. I also love that the reader is encouraged to learn from architecture from the past, from a kind of a pre-aircon era, and to consider building reuse as a long-standing tradition amongst humans. One of its last chapters is particularly interesting as it talks about the possibility of floating heritage. And that's when I feel like I stepped into the film Waterworld, but like in a really good way. The authors play with the idea of making buildings threatened by rising sea levels buoyant rather than moving buildings far away from their original area. And I've never really heard that concept explored before. But I'd argue the book is worth a read just for this chapter. Finally, and this feels slightly tacked on, the book addresses a non-built heritage question as it considers what we should do with vehicles. As we move away from traditional cars to electric vehicles, are we losing all the mechanical skills related to that world? Can historic vehicles be preserved rather than scrapped? And how can we care for a polluting but important aspect of our civilization's past? It is a good question, but this chapter didn't quite fit in with the rest of the book. Still an interesting read. This isn't exactly a light read as this is a planning heavy book, but it is on the enjoyable side of academic literature. I particularly recommend it for building buffs like me who just love fawning over architecture and maybe want to bring an environmental aspect into that particular nerdery. If you work with built heritage in general, this is definitely worth a read. This book has 238 pages and has black and white illustrations throughout. You can get it for £40.99p straight from Rutledge, and at the time of recording, you can get it for £33.37p from Amazon. You can also get it as an ebook straight from Rutledge for about 20 quid. The second book I'm going to tell you about today is called Sustainable Museums, Strategies for the 21st Century by Rachel Maiden. It's a 2011 publication from Museums Etc. Unlike the first review, this book doesn't have any academic stuffiness to it at all. This is a refreshingly approachable and accessible book written to deliver a clear message. It does initially read a little bit like an advert for the work of the author's sustainability company called Greener Museums, which was active between 2008 and 2012. It turns out Rachel now works with sustainability in another sector, so good for her. Um, But I really think she just draws on her own experiences to guide the reader. This book is split into two parts. The first focuses on concepts and theory, and the second is all case studies. I feel like while the first part of the book was friendly, uh, it was very much aimed at people on a policy level. The leaders, the managers and the directors. It talks about green champions, how to develop a green strategy and how to create and stick to environmental policies. While I feel like this was all way above my pay level, I think it's really great reading for museum managers, and I would recommend it to anyone in charge of a heritage organisation. I did, however, love the holistic approach this book takes. Like, carbon footprint wasn't taken as just fuel, energy and water consumption for the museum, but it also considered other important aspects as well. 
your institution's landfill to recycling ratio, exhibition design and loans all going to mention as important factors. But crucially, how far visitors have to come to get to you and also how far your employees commute were discussed. The second half of the book is a series of pleasantly bite-sized case studies. Short, snappy text from organizations around the world with some images and occasional diagrams. They're easy to dip in and out of, and the short format makes them really inviting to read. The case studies are predominantly from either the UK or the US, but there are a handful of other nations represented. While the majority are from museums, I found it interesting that they also included funding bodies, a zoo, and various historical societies as well. This book tries to be inspirational and motivational, and it does a pretty good job of that. Despite being a few years old at this stage, it's still really relevant and an uplifting read. I'd love to see a volume two or a straight-up follow-up publication to see how people in the case studies are progressing now, but I don't know if that's on the cards. Um, Anyway, this book is £45 from Museums Etc. for the paperback version, which includes worldwide shipping. It's got 380 pages and has black and white illustrations throughout. And just to remind you all, we love hearing your comments, questions and corrections. So if you've got any, please do write in. We love hearing from you. Just butting in really quickly. We recorded this just before the big fire at the National Museum of Brazil. Obviously, we are horrified and we're thinking of everyone involved. If anyone knows any way of helping out the actual museum workers who have been affected by the fire, then uh, please let us know somehow. We would love to know how to help. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. In this episode, we'd like to give a special shout out to our latest patron, Osa. Welcome and thanks so much for supporting us. Thanks for listening. With Seaward, you'll be listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about parenthood. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaward.show, tweet us at theseawardpodcast, or simply email us on theseawardpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.